Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Junkie XL's 2002 international chart-topping remix of Elvis Presley's 1968 recording of A Little Less Conversation, a song that was co-written by today's guest on Songcraft, Mac Davis. Hailing from Lubbock, Texas, Davis began his music career working for VJ Records and Liberty Records in Atlanta. Relocating to Los Angeles in the late 1960s, he became a staff songwriter for Nancy Sinatra's music publishing company. His early songwriting success came when Elvis Presley recorded several of his songs, including A Little Less Conversation, Memories, Clean Up Your Own Backyard, Don't Cry Daddy, and In the Ghetto. Soon, his songs were being recorded by O.C. Smith, Kenny Rogers in the first edition, Glenn Campbell, Ray Price, and Bobby Goldsboro, who enjoyed a major hit with Max watching Scotty grow in 1971. Thanks to his success as a songwriter, Davis signed an artist deal with Columbia Records and later Casablanca Records, scoring 33 charting singles between 1970 and 1986. Most of those hits were written by Davis himself, including I Believe in Music, One Hell of a Woman, Stop and Smell the Roses, It's Hard to Be Humble, Texas in My Rearview, Hooked on Music, You're My Bestest Friend, and the Grammy-nominated number one pop hit, Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me. He was named the Academy of Country Music's Entertainer of the Year in 1974, hosted his own NBC variety show from 1974 through 1976, was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2000, and joined the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006. He's a three-time Grammy nominee with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he continues to write, most recently collaborating with and having his songs recorded by Rivers Cuomo of Weezer, Bruno Mars, and Avicii. So, Paul, you are an Elvis fan. Beyond. So as an Elvis fan, uh, Mac Davis. Yeah, I circle a few dates on the calendar every <laughs> year. Uh, August 16th, when Elvis died, January 8th when he was born, and then the date that we had the Mac Davis interview on the calendar was number three for me this year. Yeah, I think what the uh, what the listeners did not get any insight into is uh after our interview with mac he showed you how to play the uh opening lick for in the ghetto on the guitar on his guitar yeah in his uh in his den and i have not seen you look that happy uh since i think photographs of of you at christmas when you're about seven yeah, I think giddy was probably the word. I, with most of these interview subjects, I try to maintain kind of an attitude of, you know, just sort of a reserved respect. And I think I went complete fangirl with uh, <laughs> with Mac Davis. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you did a little. You know, what's interesting to me is um, I feel like there are a lot of songwriters who have a window and... Um, creatively speaking or or chart success speaking or whatever and there are times that i hear new songs by classic songwriters and uh i kind of go oh okay um <laughs> it it doesn't 
you know, sometimes live up to some of their earlier work, though it yeah. might be something that they're really excited about. He played us a song, and since he didn't want to give away the details, I won't either. But it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was so well-crafted. It was uh, it was like this guy did not have to shake off the cobwebs. No. it this it, Mac is obviously a guy, I mean, even as evidenced by the fact that he's, you know, working on this stuff with Avicii, with Weezer, with Bruno Mars... He's a guy that's still got it. He's still got the juice. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, yeah, that song you mentioned that he played for us, just hearing the lyric and, and the craft of it. And, you know, I don't, that may be something that you just don't lose when yeah. you really have that kind of skill the way he has it. And it's not just about inspiration, but about the skill. Yeah. Fundamentally, that was a, that was a great song. This might be a really weird comparison, but, you know, it's almost like sometimes when you look at a piece of like antique furniture or look at an old dresser or something and you go, man, look at the look at the way that the wood is contoured here. Look at these dovetail joints. Look at the the quality of the grain of this wood. Isn't it amazing to think that 150, 200 years ago, somebody put together this amazing piece of furniture that's almost a piece of art. And it seems like a weird way to compare it, but uh, Mac Davis has written some songs that I kind of have the same reaction to. Yeah. Like you can see the handiwork, you can see the craft yeah. evident um, in the finished product. And and it, that, again, that new song that he played us, I just went, wow. Yeah, and I've I've never used the comparison of a dovetail joint, but <laughs> but I see how apt it is in this case. And maybe maybe just Mac's ability to write a great song in this era, that era, and, and to continue to do it now. Maybe that's why, for only the second time, we've got a two-part interview here with this guy. Yeah, it's funny. You know, when we try to edit these interviews, um, sometimes we have to let go of some great stories. Yeah. And um, and we did edit this interview. I mean, it was a much longer conversation than the final version. But uh, we try to keep all of our episodes uh, at about an hour or less. And um, there was just no way that was going to happen. I mean, we got down to where we're saying, okay, we're going to still have to cut 30 minutes of of this thing. And uh, the content was so good. And Mac is, you can't mess with his pacing. He has a certain pacing of the way that he talks and and it's just very warm. It's very inviting. And so uh, we said, hey, you know, we're going to have to do a rare double episode here in order to really capture the essence of of the afternoon that we spent with him. And I want I want the listeners to be the judge, but I came away from this feeling like we're friends now. You and I? No, no, no. <laughs> Me and Mac. <laughs> you and I. No, no, we're not we're friends. We're not friends. No, but I feel like I could go to his house maybe this weekend and just knock on the door and it'd be okay. Well, that, yeah, that's because Mac's a professional and he made you feel that way. <laughs> It is funny how, actually, because uh, Mac, uh, and I know this will come as a shock, uh, he lives in a nicer neighborhood than I do. Yeah. Well. And so we had to drive, you know, a little bit over yeah. to to go over to uh, to visit him. And uh, so we, we drove over to, to Brentwood uh, here, a nice uh, section of, of Los Angeles here. And uh, we were kind of like nerds about let's allow plenty of time even right. though we knew it would take 15 minutes to drive there we allowed like an hour and so then we were just creepily like sitting <laughs> in the car in front of max house right. uh the only non bmw or ferrari yeah. you know in in the neighborhood but then i remember like he kind of came out yeah. before it was time for the interview he came outside because he's like what 
obviously these yeah. guys right. must be my visitors because <laughs> they clearly don't live in this neighborhood. And, uh, and so he, he came out and from the get go, it was just disarming. I mean, yeah. he was like, he kind of reminds me the way he talks. It's kind of the Texas thing, but he kind of reminds me of like an older Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> just this sort of easygoing, like yeah. instantly likable, like cool guy that you, he, you know, it's like he, he's probably never met a stranger. Yeah. Hey guys. Yeah. Yeah. So he invited us in and uh very beautiful home. Yeah. And um he's got this cool den with like his music stuff in there, his grand piano and his acoustic guitar is sitting around and some awards and things on the wall and art from his his artist career and uh yeah, I mean we just kinda settled in and, and uh he definitely made us feel at home and kinda like just welcomed us into his house and, and talked about his career very openly and, yeah. and honestly, um, yeah. you know, I mean, a guy like that, he's a show business professional and I kind of joke about, you know, well, he's a pro, of course he made you feel like right. your friend, but he really is a genuine, uh, warm guy. He's yeah. just a very genuine man. And, you know, there's nothing that seems show busy or, or put on about him. He's just, and that's probably why he became such a big star in the seventies because mm. he just kind of oozes, authenticity and likability yeah and uh, yeah i, I kind of wish i'd uh, been around to see some of those variety shows back in the old days um because I'm, I'm sure that personality came across through the tv screen the way it did across the living room yeah um so let's take everybody into that living room and hear from mac davis sounds good mac welcome to songcraft thank you glad to do this i'm looking forward to it yeah well you grew up in lubbock texas um which is a town that has produced a remarkable amount of talented musicians. And, you know, you really can't talk about Lubbock, Texas without talking about Buddy Holly. And as a kid growing up there, did his success uh, give you something to kind of look toward and kind of think, hmm, maybe maybe there's a life to be made in music here? Absolutely. I mean, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't <laughs> give him a lot of credit, actually. Uh, he... Uh, uh, used to play at the skating rink, and it was just right down the road from my house. And uh, I lived right across the street from Texas Tech, and there was a skating rink there that that he used to play in on Friday nights. And from 10 o'clock till midnight, after they stopped the skating, that Buddy Holly would, uh, and the crickets would crank up and play. And yeah. we'd all go down to 25 cents. Wow. Back <laughs> in that day, I was still in high school. And, yeah. Um, he... Uh, he really was kind of, you know, at, at that time, just a local yokel, and nobody thought that much about it. You know, he real skinny, and he, he, uh, his jacket always looked like he'd left a coat hanger in it, and <laughs> he kind of bobbed around in it like, uh, uh, I don't know. At any rate, he uh, went off to New York for a year and all of a sudden had a monster hit record, and that'll be the day, of mm. course. And yeah. uh, a year later, he comes back driving down – College Avenue, which was where I lived, and I was sitting out on the front porch at my daddy's little motel, the college courts. Yeah. And here comes Buddy in a brand-new Pontiac Catalina convertible <laughs> with two good-looking girls in the car. Here's this <laughs> this old, you know, local, homely old Buddy Holly right. with his glasses and two good-looking girls and driving purposely about 25 miles an hour sure. so you could see that right. it was – 
And I just kind of said, man, I believe I can do this. <laughs> you know, this is me. And uh, that was really it was part of what inspired me to go ahead. Cause I knew I had a talent to write songs and stuff. But yeah, uh, I decided to start trying yeah. to put words to them and stuff then. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever heard a, a better picture of the American dream than bespectacled Buddy Holly driving down the street in that Pontiac <laughs> with those two girls. Yeah, well, it's... A, it's inspiring me right now. <laughs> um, in, in addition to being able to see Buddy Holly for a quarter at a time, what was some other music that was kind of shaping you as a kid? Well, you know, I, I was a rebel without a clue, just like most teenagers. <laughs> and I, I listened... Uh, there was really nothing locally in Lubbock to listen to back then except country radio. Mm. And um, uh, Snuff Garrett, who's a, f- a record producer, that his name might have popped up in Yeah, yeah, in Liberty your, Records uh, guy, right? Yeah, in your yeah. research every now and then. He, uh, he had a radio show called a Snuff and High Pocket Show. And, you know, those typical small-town country stations. And, right. Uh, um, I loved... I got somehow or another turned on to to blues right and rhythm and blues and uh, found a big fifty thousand watt station out of Shreveport, Louisiana. And I used to get on my radio and I would listen to Jimmy Reed and right and uh, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and right and Little Walter, especially Little Walter because he was a great harmonica player. And yeah, that was one of the first things. My dream was to just learn how to play blues on a harmonica and uh so that was i had a lot of uh influence yeah uh, through that and and oddly enough you don't hear it in a lot of my songs but i still sit down and try to write blues stuff yeah yeah sure when did you first kind of make that uh leap where you went hey i'm gonna try my hand at writing some of my own songs making up some of my own stuff well i was doing it from the time i learned how to whistle and uh, of course, I went to church, you know, uh, with my family, and and they sang there. And and my daddy could, you know, he would sing louder than anybody else, but he was awful. He didn't <laughs> hardly carry a tune. But right. when I learned to whistle, and my daddy was one of these these kind of people, he said, "Have you learned to whistle yet?" And he'd ask every kid he met, "You got to learn how to whistle, boy. <laughs> you know what? Make you feel good." Right. And uh, when I learned how to whistle, I started making up songs, and huh. I could. Uh, Literally, you know, at the age of seven, eight, whatever it was, uh, I knew structure. I could make up songs. I'd do two verses and a chorus and a verse. Wow. And I, I don't know how Jeez. I figured that out, but huh. I know my daddy would, uh, he'd say, <laughs> we'd be in the car or something, and he'd say, What's that? You're a whistling boy. And I'd say, uh, I made it up. <laughs> and he'd say, You did not. <laughs> he couldn't. He right. couldn't fathom that yeah. you could just pick notes out of the air and right. make a song. Put them together. And, you know, it's amazing how many people still can't. I understand that when you were uh, still a teenager, you made your way to Atlanta and eventually formed a, a rock band called The Zots. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, recorded a couple singles for the OEK label, and, and you went on to record a, a handful of Singles under your own name, including the self-penned Too Much Twistin', which was uh, helmed by future Elvis producer Felton Jarvis. Um, talk about how, how that came together. Oh, my gosh. You have really done some research <laughs> if you dug that up. <laughs> Too Much Twistin'. I, was, I had moved to Atlanta. I, was, uh, uh, I graduated school early because I'd skipped a couple of grades. I was 16 and uh, started going to Emory University there. 
Uh, I formed a little band called the Zots. Uh, uh, we used to play at a place called Misty Waters Roller Rink and Country Club. <laughs> and uh, the that idea about playing at skating rinks hadn't really reached Atlanta yet. You know? right. and so we... I, I talked the guys into uh, letting us play there. Yeah. And um, we played there uh, on Friday nights, and it turned out to be a big deal. And so I got the attention of a couple of people, and like Felton was, was a guy that worked for a company called Bill Lowry oh, sure. Music, Lowry, Lowry Music Company. And yeah. A big time, became a big time publisher. Right. And uh, so Felton took me in, and I'm not sure, I think Joe South might have played. Uh, Played the guitar on that. On that, oh, yeah. basically, it was a demo, you know. Yeah, yeah. Too much twisting, bump, bump, bump. Too much twisting, going on. Got a pain. I got a catch in a small of my back. <laughs> I got a pain uh, in my sacroiliac. Wow. <laughs> doctor put me on the critical list. On the critical list. And all because I tried to do the twist. I can't believe I remember that. (laughs) Well, uh, after you kind of had that moment as the artist, one of your first uh, successes as like an outside songwriter for another artist came when The Phantom Strikes Again was recorded by Sam the Sham, who we know from Wooly Bully. How did that one come about? I was, uh, by that time, I was working for a record company as a sales and promotion man. And uh, traveling, actually traveling 13 states. I was 21 years old. Hmm. Was this um, VJ Records? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was with VJ Records, and uh, uh, which was an R&B label. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was that was my, my true love, really, in those days. But at any rate, uh, I happened to be at a, entertaining some disc jockeys or something, and I walked into the men's room, and there was... Uh, Sam the Shams record producer in there and I I don't remember his name but I do know that somebody had said that's Sam the Shams record producer and I'd written actually this song was I wrote it hoping that someday or another I would find a way to get it to the coasters but yeah. I didn't know the business that way Yeah. but Sam the Sham was, was a hot artist at the time and uh, he had just had Red, Red Riding Hood Little Red Riding Hood as right. a single and um uh, I thought, well, maybe man, that would be this would be a good idea for him. So I went in there and caught this guy standing at the urinal. <laughs> and if I ever had a captive audience, that was it. <laughs> right, he can't go anywhere. And I said, man, you got to. I know this is bad timing, but you got to hear this. And I sung him the first verse and uh, of uh, the Phantom Strikes Again. Yeah. And he said, you know what? I like that. He <laughs> says, uh, get a copy over to me tomorrow and the next day. Uh, I cut it down, you know, cut a little tape on it. This yeah. was in Nashville, actually. Oh, I was really? selling, uh, you know, I was out there doing my business, right. selling records. Yeah. But uh, they ended up recording The Phantom Strikes Again. 
And uh, I got to be honest with you, it went on the uh, the Little Red Riding Hood album, which was a, I think, a platinum selling album. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I never got any money for it. Wow! Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. My name was on it. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I got. If I did, it was one of those early checks for a dollar ninety-seven. Right. Know, something like. a, a hard early lesson in uh, some shady music business economics. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I understand that you you worked as this regional promotion guy. Was it regional promotion? Is that what you were doing? Mm-hmm. At, at regional VJ? sales man. Actually, I was called a regional sales manager. Yeah. But I um, just went in and took inventories and, you know, <laughs> kind of just told the guys to right to have what they were out of. Yeah, you know, yeah. Catalog stuff. And, right. That yeah, was pretty and much And then it. you went to, to Liberty at one point while you're still there in Atlanta. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, VJ went down the tubes. And uh, they went bankrupt. And uh, I actually uh, had a couple of checks bounce. Mm. And I called them up and said, man, I'm, you know, I got a real problem here. And, yeah. Uh, the guy that was running the company then was uh, very good natured about it. He called me. He says, you know what? He says, I'll take care of it. And he actually sent me a check, a cashier's check, for twice the amount they owed me. Huh. And I called him back and I said, man, uh, sent me too much money and he said put you on the other end of the stick baby for a little while he said this i don't know how we're going to get out of this wow hung right. up on me and just uh luckily i got offered a job uh, yeah. at liberty records yeah that same period and uh, right ended up uh taking it were you um when you had these essentially day jobs in the music industry for vj and liberty were you actively pursuing in your mind were you thinking I want to be a songwriter or I want to be an artist. Was that kind of the, the end goal? Yeah. I wanted to be a, a songwriter and an artist. And of course I wanted to be a, you know, rock and roll star, but I yeah. didn't have those kind of pipes <laughs> and uh, I definitely wasn't uh, R and B uh, quality in my voice, but uh, I knew that songwriting was a way to get there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. of course, Tommy Rowe, was having hits there out of Atlanta. Right. Ray Stevens, uh, who at that time was Ray Ragsdale, right. started having hits with uh, Ahab the Arab and, yeah. and all those Fatima voices right. that he did. Right. And uh, there were a lot of people that, that really were striking at Jerry Reed, who right. was Jerry Hubbard. Right, right. But, uh, and all this was all guys, kind of centering on that Bill Lowry all, world, right? Yeah, yeah. The Bill Lowry was the hub, and and the spokes you know, shot out in yeah. all different directions. Right, and um, so I had that in my head, and actually uh, got a couple of songs. Um, they recorded me on a couple of songs, and yeah. uh, put them out, and um, uh, but they sold them to VJ, hmm. and then uh, <laughs> VJ put them out, and nothing happened with them. And, yeah. One of them I didn't write. One of them was written uh, by a guy in Nashville, and it was called uh, A Little Dutch Town. It was one of those teenage death songs. Right. And uh, what an embarrassment. I still listen. <laughs> See, we didn't dig that one up, so it must I be buried good. It's wonderful it was that you didn't dig that up. Uh, it's buried where it should be. So we go from Lubbock, Texas, and then you find yourself in, in the center of all the activity in Atlanta. How did you wind up in California? Well, the job took me there, Liberty Records. Uh, they knew that I wanted to be in the creative end of the business because of the fact that I was sending them songs all the time. Yeah. So they um, 
they offered me the Atlanta branch hmm. or I could come out to California for the same salary that I was earning as a promotion man and living in Atlanta. And that was a, that was a real rude awakening. Right. Uh, but I took, uh, you know, I wanted to be in the creative end of, they offered me the job out here, uh, uh, with the publishing company as a, mm. what they called a professional manager, but basically that's song plugger. Right. Yeah. I came out and took that job and, uh, hoping to be close to songwriters and close right. to the business. And, uh, uh it cost me uh, personally, uh, you know, it was, uh, the cost of living cost out of living here was a way, <laughs> right. way different. Can't stretch the dollar. Right. And, uh, uh, my family, my wife and son, uh, you know, couldn't take the hours. I was up writing songs till wee hours of the morning with Delaney Bramlett and people like that. And yeah, um, and at any rate, uh, eventually it, it paid off. You know, I know that one of the the people who kind of played an important uh, role in your early career when you came to California was Nancy Sinatra. Um, and she cut uh, God Knows I Love You, which charted in 1969, um, which is a song I bring up because you mentioned Delaney Bramlett. And uh, it's a song Delaney and his wife Bonnie also recorded in 1970. But um, I'm curious, uh, you know, you come out to, to California and you start forming these relationships with, with people like Delaney Bramlett and, and Nancy Sinatra or Freddie Weller, you know, different people that are um, kind of already movers and, and shakers. Um, talk a little bit about just that experience of getting to know some of these folks and, and starting to make inroads of what your music community is going to be now that you've kind of left this Atlanta music community behind. Well, F Freddie Weller, I knew from Atlanta. Hmm. Freddie was uh, a local uh, kid from Atlanta who... Um, was a really good guitar player, and his idol was Joe South. He played a lot like Joe. Right. And uh, uh, he um, ended up with Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right. And he moved to Los Angeles. And so he and I, would uh, we'd go to the Palomino Club out here, the country places, and yeah. and uh, chase the waitresses around or whatever. <laughs> and, um, he... Uh, he, he was very successful at it. I wasn't. I have figured that out. Everybody but, needs a wingman. Uh, oh, he was just a good-looking guy, you know. And uh, he was one of those guys that Freddie, uh, he could walk up to these girls and say, well, are you going to leave with me or what? <laughs> and sure enough, they'd just look around and say, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and I'd sit there and go, how does he do that? But at any rate, I think it might have been something to do with the rock and roll aspect. Right. About, but at any rate uh, – uh, he and I would write, and uh, I would write with some. I'd co-write with some of the writers at Metric Music, which was Liberty's uh, publishing offshoot. And I would uh, write with these guys, and I didn't have a whole lot of success. But uh, there was a guy named Billy Strange, mm -hmm. sure, who uh, you'll see his name pop up a lot yeah. in, in my, my uh, bio. And uh, Billy would come by just looking for songs, and yeah. He was the hot lick man, you know. He was the hook guy right. that uh, played on a lot of sessions. And he was the guy that uh, when Nancy uh, and Lee Hazelwood had uh, these boots are made for walking, well, Billy Strange was... Right. That was his deal, and he played, right. you know, the guitar and that. Yeah. I, I would play him stuff and, uh, that that was part of metric music's catalog and if nothing moved him i'd 
end up slipping one of mine in there right. underneath, or I'd play him something that I'd written with uh, with Delaney or one of the other guys. And uh, he kind of liked my style a little bit. And at some point, you know, after having so much success with uh, Nancy, um, Nancy did a movie with Elvis Presley and became friendly right. with Elvis and his people. And Billy Strange kind of came along with the package somewhere down the line, and uh, they asked him to score an Elvis Presley movie. Right. So all these deals kind of came together. Billy came and asked me if I would like to, to be a songwriter, the first songwriter for Nancy Sinatra's new publishing company. Right. And which was called BNB Music. Mm. And that was Billy Nancy Boots. That's what <laughs> that stood for. So it was yeah. Billy and Nancy and Boots Enterprises. And uh, I said, yeah. And uh, he, he was uh, doing scoring an Elvis Presley movie, and he asked me if I had any songs for it. Yeah. And uh, I had a song that I'd written for Aretha Franklin, or at least I had her in mind when I wrote it. Yeah. Still would love to hear her record it, but it was called uh, A Little Less Conversation. Hmm. And uh, it fit into this script. They gave me a script to read. You know, if I, he said, I've got a chance of getting a song in an Elvis movie. And right. Would you be interested? And I said something to the effect of, duh. Because <laughs> uh, right. I grew up, you know, Elvis was, was actually a bigger influence on me than Buddy Holly was. I mean, yeah. Elvis came to Lubbock and God, somewhere in the mid fifties. I don't remember the date, but right. uh, uh, the date. I yeah, do remember, I remember the date. The day. very well. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, so he was uh, you know, a hero. Yeah. Did and, you have to um, tweak a little less conversation from the way you had envisioned it for Aretha uh, and sort of mold it to an Elvis type thing? Or was it something you were able to just take and say, hey, this fits totally? I just had to clean up the lyrics a little bit. Ah. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> the way I'd written it for her. In fact, the, the original lyric was. Um, I work hard all day long to please you, treat you like a king. You come home just running your mouth, but you ain't saying a doggone thing. Give me a little bit of conversation, a little more action, please. <laughs> and I could just hear Aretha doing that. Yeah. yeah. But they thought it was a little bit of you know funky for him, so I had to kind of clean up. And it ended up, uh, oh gosh, it's a groovy night, and I can show you how to use it. You know, come <laughs> right. along with me, and I'll show you how to use. It. That's that's the way it turned out. It's a groovy night, and I can show you how to use it. You come along with me and put your mind at ease. Hey, less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation and satisfaction. And a little more bite, a little less bark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Set your mouth and open up your heart. And baby, satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. He got in the movie, and yeah. it was the door that, that opened for me. Wow. Well, and as as someone who had been influenced by Elvis, and his his presence was was uh, a monumental one, I think, for any musician at the time. What do you remember about the first time you actually met him? I couldn't. I was beside myself. I was so full of myself. I left a bad taste in my own mouth. <laughs> I was, I got, here I am sitting here with Elvis Presley. Well, what a great context to meet him in, not just as a fan, but as a writer of a song that he's doing. Yeah. Well, I got invited to go down to, this is the first night I met him, was uh, at the studio. Uh, we went to the sound stage, and they were, he was actually doing the scene in the movie. 
and lip syncing the song. Wow. And uh, walking around this big swimming pool, the whole thing was sitting around the swimming pool, and he was trying to seduce this young lady. And uh, I went in there, and Colonel Parker uh, and all the Memphis Mafia were there. Right. And I'd never met any of them either. Right, right. Colonel Parker, his manager. His manager. Yeah. Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah. It was so much fun watching because in those days, uh, you didn't have the digital uh, recording and right. you had to rewind. It took you the same amount of time to rewind for a movie that it did to play it forward. Right. So if he was two and a half minutes into the song and to make a mistake, which he was, he'd, he'd start giggling or whatever, right. or something, he'd mess up. It'd take another two and a half minutes wow. to go backwards yeah. to wait before they started back up again. So it was a long, drawn-out process, mm-hmm. and especially Elvis, every time they'd stop, he'd just go to the piano while they were rewinding. They had an old uh, piano sitting over there for his amusement. Right. And he'd get the guys around, and he'd sing a gospel song. Yeah, yeah. And that would turn into two gospel songs. And it would end up everybody waiting. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so... During one of these things, Colonel Parker waves at me, beckons me over there, and he says, so, come here, boy. I walked <laughs> over, and he, of course, I had a little Afro haircut right. back in those days. And he says, uh, you the boy that wrote this song? And I said, uh, yes, sir. And he says, uh, bend over here and let the colonel rub your curly head. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> he says, let, let me rub that curly head of yours. And uh, I looked around, and the Memphis Mafia guys were all nodding their heads like, right. that's, that's a good idea. Right. You know? So I like went over, and I bent over, and he rubbed my head. And he said, now you go tell everybody that Colonel Parker rubbed your head, and you're going to be a star. <laughs> and I will never forget that, that big cigar in his mouth. And, uh, he was such a carny. But that was a big night in my life. And, uh, yeah. Well, it turns out he was, was right. Elvis was so kind. He was very, very nice to me. And right. He said, man, I love this song. He said, I love, love the song, man. <laughs> right. I love the way you write, man. Yeah. And uh, it turned out to be a, a really nice relationship. Well, Elvis recorded the version of the song for the film and the single. And then I understand that he recorded another version of the song that was at one time maybe going to be used for the 68 comeback special, which didn't wind up getting used until years later, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but another one of your songs memories was used, uh, in the 68 comeback special and became your first top 40 pop hit and your first entry on the country chart. Memories press between the pages of my mind. Memories sweeten through the ages just like wine Quiet thoughts come floating down and settle softly to the ground Like gold of autumn leaves around my feet I touch them and they burst apart with sweet memories um, what can you tell us about writing memories? Uh, I wrote it especially for the, the comeback, what they call the comeback special. Yeah. And uh, uh, Billy Strange was doing that as well, that special. And Billy says, we need a song about looking back over the years. We're right. going to do a segment in the show where he's going to wear this unbelievable leather 
outfit and he's going <laughs> to sing the old 50s songs and the stuff from the Sundays. Yeah. They want something about looking back over the years uh, to, to uh, bookend it. Yeah. Start the song, then do the bit, and then end the song at the end of it. Right. So um, I went over to Billy's house, and he had a little office out in his garage where he worked. Yeah. And uh, I just started messing around with uh, with this song, this idea. I said, "How about memories?" And he said, "Okay." And so I, and the the, the language of the day back back in the. 1968, you know, was everything was all psychedelia and right. uh, colors and and swirling, you know, acid <laughs> right. trips and blah blah blah. And right. So I just started right off of this thing, uh, you know. Uh, silent thoughts come floating down, settle softly to the ground like golden autumn leaves around my feet. Right. And I went, wow, this is good, you know, and yeah. flowery kind of stuff, right. but. Uh, Billy liked it, and so uh, I uh, wrote it that night. We wow. had to have it done by the next day uh, <laughs> to cut a demo on it and make a decision on what he was going to use wow. for right. that deal. And uh, I stayed up all night long, wow. and uh, Billy went to bed, everybody went to bed, and uh, <laughs> I sat down and, and wrote the song. And I know Billy gave me a pill. I'd never had an upper before, right. and I haven't had one since. <laughs> And believe me, there's a reason for it. I, that, that, I don't handle that well. And I remember sitting there because I, I couldn't stay awake, and I was right. just tired, and I, and I knew I had to finish that song. But right. He gave me this little red pill that the truckers take, right. you know, or right. used to take. Yeah. And um, so this is the the, Mac, could, the Mac Davis drug period, which lasted for uh, one night, one day. <laughs> one day. But I uh, uh, literally, I. I thought I could see the the hand spinning on the clock. Wow. wow. It was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm wired up here. <laughs> right. But by the time I got the song finished, at about 8 o'clock that morning, I was sitting in Billy's living room waiting for somebody to come in so I could sing him that song. I couldn't wait. I knew wow. I'd written something pretty good. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned the kind of like, you know, uh, the influence of the times and the psychedelia, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong on these lines, uh, Quiet Nights and Gentle Days – Twilight's trimmed in purple haze. Is that what mm-hmm. that line says? I mean, that's yeah. When when you describe it that way, I'm like, oh, it exactly fits into that kind of. But it, to me, that song sounds like a standard. It sounds like something that would have been written long before the time period. You know. You know, in those days, um, I I didn't know much about the guitar and uh, about music in general. I mean, I could I could write all kinds of kind of rock and roll sound and stuff and country sound and stuff. But when it come to the really pretty stuff, um, I I didn't know what chord went with which chord. Right. You know, I knew a lot of chords, but I didn't know how to put them together. And uh, in that song, uh, I got lost in it. And uh, Billy helped me at one point. Helped me uh, transition from the from the key of A. I went into C and then D and transitioned back into. Uh, the, the key of A. Otherwise, yeah, I'd still right. be sitting there trying to figure out how do I get back there. <laughs> and he showed me a progression, and I made a melody around it, and it worked. And uh, I think that it helped me a lot in the beginning of my career as a songwriter. I think it helped me that I didn't stick to a formula because I didn't right. know enough about music to do it. Right. Um, I wrote a uh, song for Kenny Rogers in the first edition called Something's Burning that did the same thing. It, 
it got off and started off in one key, and all of a sudden it was in another one, and then I had to figure out how to get it back. Right. <laughs> but the fact that I did, it made the song sound different and fresh and, yeah. Yeah. and new in people's uh, ears, and uh, I think it helped me a lot as a songwriter. I think it still does. I still don't know how to read or write music. Hmm. When you talk about you know pulling an all-nighter, writing a song like that, waiting for people to show up in the morning to hear what you've got, do you like writing under pressure like that, or does it, is it hard? I kind of like it. I like knowing that I have to have something finished at a certain time. Mm. And uh, it forces me to discipline myself and sit down and do it. Yeah. And uh, also, if I get an idea that I know is really, really good and original, I'll stay on that until I finish it, too. Yeah. yeah. But then there's other times I've just, just wanted to write something commercial. Right. Um, and I, I find myself doing that too. I'm kind of a hook guy, and um, I, I seem to come up with hooks pretty good. You know, if yeah. uh, I don't want to. I don't want to say something and sound like I'm bragging on myself. I'm not. <laughs> it's just I'm kind of hook oriented. In fact, I've written a couple of songs that were hits that had the word hook in the title. <laughs> right. So, well, know. the the songs kind of brag for you. So at, the, at this point, you're just telling the truth. Well, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, look, I. I I wrote a song called It's Hard to Be Humble, but I'm telling you something, it's not. I'm very, uh, I get slapped down every day by, in, in one way or another, you know. Well, you, you had other songs recorded by Elvis, uh, including Nothingville, Charo, which was the B-side of Memories, and the top 40 hit Clean Up Your Own Backyard, which, as an aside, the first time I ever played a concert by myself solo, I played Clean Up Your Own Backyard. Did that. you really? I, yeah, I'm a big Elvis fan. And it broke meter. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It broke meter. You I, know? I did the best I could with it. I was probably yeah. 19 years old. That's great. I, I didn't even realize that it broke meter until I'd already <laughs> finished it. And uh, I don't think I knew any better either. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I, I it's so funny that you bring that song up because t- today you, he could, you could remix that uh, as a little less conversation got remixed. You right, could right. remix... Uh, clean up your own backyard. You'd have to take that break and meter part out, though, because it, it wouldn't. It would not make me happy if it was left in there. But you could do it real easy, just by going. Uh, Isn't it a pity that in this big city, not one little bitty man will admit he could have been wrong, instead of a little, a bit, little wrong, bit wrong. Which I kept trying to put more interline rhymes in and there. And can I tell you how hard that was in 1996 or whenever it was, when the internet wasn't as available to everyone, for me to figure out what in the world that said. So I could try to sing it, and I don't think that's what I said. I think uh, it, I was just hit a little, little pity. Oh, it's bit like wrong. I used to sing La Bamba in my uh, <laughs> my little rock and roll band, the Zots. Right. I'd sing La Bamba. I just make up stuff. I had no idea what it meant, but I, like I said, I could never remember the words to other people. I songs. wish I'd have known you then. I would have gotten confirmation on that lyric. But um, you know, following the '68 comeback special, Elvis had a, a major career resurgence. Um, he started recording with producer Chips Moman in Memphis and In the Ghetto became his first top ten single in four years As the snow flies On a cold and gray Chicago morning a poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries Cause if there's one thing she don't need is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto. 
tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind that song. And, you know, I mean, Elvis didn't record a lot of social material. Only a couple songs you could say, uh, If I Can Dream and In the Ghetto. What do you think it was about that song that really appealed to Elvis? You know, uh, I really don't know. I, I, it, it just had hit written all over it. You want to know the truth. It was a song that, whose time had come, and somebody somebody had to do it. Yeah. And uh, somebody was going to do it. And that was one of those things, you know, I've, I've questioned a lot of my songs and everything, but when I got done with In the Ghetto, I knew that I that that was a song that was going to be played yeah. and uh, and was going to be remembered, and uh, I hadn't even thought about giving it to Elvis at that point. It didn't sound like Elvis, and, right. but I get a phone call. Hey, they're looking for material. They're going to record Elvis in Memphis, and they're looking for uh, you know good Memphis sound and songs and good songs that have uh, you know hit written all over them. Right. Well, of course, I I sent them every song that I had. That <laughs> I, I did. I sent them right. a tape had 19 songs on it. Wow. Uh, and the, But the first song on there was In the Ghetto. And the second song was Don't Cry Daddy. Wow. Jeez. But I know after they recorded it, uh, I, get, I was getting word back that uh, the colonel didn't want him to, to record it or didn't want to release it. And RCA didn't want to release it. Uh, but Chip's Moman believed in it, and Elvis really believed in it. And Elvis went to the wall fighting for that song. You know, he had he had uh, allowed them to let him put out a lot of the stuff that was second rate from from some of the movies that he did. Yeah. And I'm not putting down other songwriters. Right. I'm just saying it was songs that weren't Elvis. Right. And uh, uh, he he fought for the song. Wow. And uh, I remember. First time I heard it on the radio, I just thinking, "Oh man, I can't!" But I finally, I've got a career now. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I knew that uh, good things were going to happen. Yeah, from from then on. Where'd you get the original idea? I had been wanting to write a song about uh, uh, poverty in the inner city, and I grew up in my little town. We had Dirt Street Ghetto, but they didn't call it ghetto; it had another word. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I don't use. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my best friends as a little kid, when I was five, six, seven years old, was the son of a guy. My daddy was a small-time building contractor in Lubbock, and he had a guy that worked for him, uh, Smitty. And Smitty was a uh, Alan Smith was his name, but right. everybody called him Smitty. He was a black guy, and his son was the same age as me, Smitty Junior. Everybody called him <laughs> or Junior. Right. And uh, he and I played together all the time. We were like best buddies, you know. And, right. And I could never figure out why he had to live in that dirt street part of town, which was broken glass. Every square foot had at least one piece of broken glass in it. Yeah. And these kids run around barefoot in it. I, c- I couldn't understand yeah. why I got to live, even though I've <laughs> we didn't have anything either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got to live you know we actually had a little grass in our in front of our house you know all my life i'd wanted to try to write something that that drew attention to their plight not you know solve any problems or anything else but the idea was take a look at you and me are we too blind to see around that time 68 69 uh the word ghetto got dragged out of the dirt 
mm-hmm. from the Polish ghettos and, mm-hmm. and during World War II in the in the Jewish ghettos. Right. Um, it got dragged out to describe the problems in the inner city in our little country here. Yeah. And I went, that's the deal. Well, that's where the song is. And Freddie Weller, name keeps popping up. Yeah. Was in my little little uh, cubby hole that I had at Nancy Sinatra's company, and uh, he said, "Hey, I got to show you this lick I stole from Joe South," <laughs> and uh, he played this lick for me. Yeah. And I went, "Oh, I like that. Show me how to do that." <laughs> so he showed it to me, and I went home that afternoon. I was playing that thing, and I started going in to get him. In the ghetto, and I went. Well, there's my hook right there. So I stole it. Stole the lick that he stole from Joe. (laughs) Wrote the song that night, and uh, called him up and sang it to him. And he hung up on me after it got done. (laughs) I won't say what he said, but he he knows. He he hears this. He'll know. And he, he just hung up on me and yeah. good naturedly, of course, but he knew, right. I'd, he knew I'd written the hit yeah. too. So. This concludes part one of our interview with Mac Davis, but there's a lot more to come, so be sure to check out part two. Black porch preacher preaching at me. 